Forget why and how, they are so yesterday. This week on Selected Shorts, it's who, what, where, as we ask basic questions with stories performed by Willem Dafoe and more. Stay with us. host Meg Wallitzer and you're listening to Selected Shorts, where our greatest actors transport us through the magic of fiction, one short story at a time. Shorts has a long history and I'm so happy that as host I get to be a part of it in a new way. This show has been my companion for years and I'm so glad to be with you every week. There's something about finding a story on the radio by a writer whose work you might not know or maybe haven't read in a while. I've had that experience with this show. I've heard a story and just loved it, and I'll be like, I love this writer. Who is she? And the thing is, I wasn't expecting that particular story. I wasn't in the mood for that one writer. When you come right down to it, most stories, however subtle, are asking the big basic questions that we usually apply to journalism. Who, what, where? And in the three stories on this show, we see how writers make those questions count. The who, the characters, really resonate. The what, Their situation is revealed in a way that is specific to that writer and his or her concerns. And the where? Well, all the wheres in these three stories are, of course, different, but each of them is its own fully imagined world. In one story in our show, a celebrity writer plays himself for a TV crew, and so does his son. In the second, sensory overload turns a man into a psychedelic dreamer, not sure what's real and what he's imagined. And in the third, A traditional woman has a difficult reckoning with her family and her place in it. Our first story is by the prolific and inventive Israeli writer Edgar Carrot, a short's favorite. His many story collections include Fly Already, Suddenly a Knock on the Door, and The Nimrod Flipout. As a writer, I've always wanted to ask Edgar Carrot how he manages to make the simplest premise into something thoughtful and even prankish. This little piece, What Animal Are You?, is a great example. On the surface, Carrot is just describing one of the small irritations of celebrity life, having the media invade your home. A German TV crew wants to film him being a writer, and they're delighted when his young son wants to join in. What Animal Are You? is read by the distinguished New York actor Willem Dafoe, a founding member of the Wooster Group Theater Company. His many film credits include Shadow of the Vampire, The Grand Budapest Hotel, Tom and Viv, and at Eternity's Gate. And of course, there's the Marvel franchise where you can find him as the arch-villain Green Goblin in two Spider-Man movies. And just a heads up for parents of younger children, there's a brief mention of adult behavior. The sentences I'm writing now are for the benefit of the German public television viewers. A reporter who came to my home today asked me to write something on the computer because it always makes for great visuals, an author writing. It's a cliché, she realizes that, but clichés are nothing but an unsexy version of the truth, and her role as a reporter is to turn that truth into something sexy. To break the cliché with lighting and unusual angles, and the light in my house falls perfectly without her having to turn on a single spot. So all that's left is for me to write. 
At first, I just made believe I was writing, but she said it wouldn't work. People would be able to tell right away that I was just pretending. Write something for real, she demanded. And then, to be sure, a story, not just a bunch of words. Write naturally, the way you always do. I told her it wasn't natural for me to be writing while I was having my picture taken for German public television. <laughs> but she insisted. So use it, she said. Write a story about just that, about how unnatural it seems and how the unnaturalness suddenly produces something real, filled with passion, something that permeates you from your brain to your loins or the other way around. I don't know how it works with you, but <laughs> what part of your body gets the creative juices flowing? Each person is different. She told me how she once interviewed a Belgian author who, every time he wrote, had an erection. Something about writing, about the writing, stiffened his organ. That's the expression she used. It was probably a literal translation from German, and it sounded very strange in English. <laughs> right, she insisted. Great. I love your terrible posture when you write the cramped neck. It's just wonderful. Keep writing. Excellent. That's it. Naturally. Don't mind. Forget I'm here. <laughs> so I go on writing, not minding her, forgetting she's there, and I'm natural, as natural as I can be. I have a score to settle with the viewers of German public television, but this isn't the time to settle it. <laughs> this is the time to write, to write things that will appeal, because when you write crap, she had already reminded me. <laughs> It comes out terrible on camera. <laughs> My son returns from kindergarten. He runs up to me and hugs me. Whenever there's a television crew in the house, he hugs me. <laughs> when he was younger, the reporters had to ask him to do it. But by now, he's a pro. <laughs> runs up to me, doesn't look at the camera, gives me a hug and says, I love you, Daddy. <laughs> he isn't four yet. But he already understands how things work, this adorable son of mine. My wife isn't as good, the German television reporter says. She doesn't flow, keeps fiddling with her hair, stealing glances at the camera. But that isn't really a problem. You can always edit her out later. That's what's so nice about television. In real life, it isn't like that. In real life, you can't edit her out, undo her. Only God can do that, or a bus if it runs her over, or a terrible disease. Our upstairs neighbor is a widower. An incurable disease took his wife from him. Not cancer, something else. Something that starts in the guts and ends badly. For six months, she was shitting blood. At least that's what he told me. Six months before God Almighty edited her out. Ever since she died, all kinds of women keep visiting our building, wearing high heels and cheap perfume. They arrive at unlikely hours, sometimes as early as noon. He's retired, our upstairs neighbor, and his time is his own. And those women, according to my wife at least, they're whores. 
When she says whores, it comes out natural, like she's saying turnip. <laughs> but when she's being filmed, it doesn't. Nobody's perfect. My son loves the whores who visit our upstairs neighbor. <laughs> what animal are you? He asks them when he bumps into them on the stairs. Today, I'm a mouse, a quick and slippery mouse. And they get it right away and throw out the name of an animal, an elephant, a bear, a butterfly, each whore and her animal. <laughs> it's strange because with other people, when he asks them about the animals, they simply don't catch on. But the whores just go along with it. <laughs> Which gets me thinking that the next time a television crew arrives, I'll bring one of them instead of my wife, and that way it'll be more natural. They look great, cheap, but great, and my son gets along better with them too. <laughs> when he asks my wife what animal she is, she always insists, I'm not an animal, sweetie. I'm a person. I'm your mommy. <laughs> and then he always starts to cry. <laughs> Why can't she just go with the flow, my wife? Why is it so easy for her to call women with cheap perfume whores, but when it comes to telling a little boy I'm a giraffe, it's more than she can handle? It really gets on my nerves, makes me want to hit someone, not her. Her I love, but someone to take out my frustrations on someone who has it coming. Right-wingers can take it out on Arabs, racists on blacks, but those of us who belong to the liberal left are trapped. <laughs> We've boxed ourselves in. We have nobody to take it out on. Don't call them whores, I rail at my wife. You don't know for a fact that they're whores, do you? You've never seen anyone pay for them or anything, so don't call them that, okay? I mean, how would you feel if someone called you a whore? Great, the German reporter says. I love it. The crease in your forehead, the frenzied keystrokes. Now, all we need are an intercut with translations of your books in different languages so our viewers can tell how successful you are. And that hug from your son one more time. The first time, he ran up to you so quickly that Jörg, our cameraman, didn't have a chance to change the focus. My wife wants to know if the German reporter needs her to hug me again, too, and in my heart, I pray she'll say yes. I'd really love my wife to hug me again, her smooth arms tightening around me as if there's nothing else in the world but us. No need, the German says in an icy voice. We've got that already. What animal are you? My son asks the German. And I quickly translate into English. I'm not an animal, she laughs, running her long fingernails through her hair. I'm a monster. <laughs> a monster that came from across the ocean to eat pretty little children like you. <laughs> she says she's a songbird. I translate to my son with impeccable naturalness. She says she's a red-feathered songbird who flew here from a faraway land. That's it. Willem Dafoe performed Edgar Carrot's What Animal Are You? I'm Meg Wallitzer. 
I love the way Carrot can turn any scene into a comedy of manners. Our second piece, Nothing Can Come Between Us, by Ruman Alam, is a lyrical story for the senses. And while we bring it to you as a listening experience, smell, sight, and touch also come fully into play. In this story, a narrator meets a friend's baby, and this encounter sparks a Proustian transformation that shapes the rest of his life. There are no Madeleines involved, in case you were wondering. Ruman Alam is the author of three novels, Leave the World Behind, That Kind of Mother, and Rich and Pretty, and is published in The New Yorker, The New York Review of Books, The New York Times, and The New Republic, among other publications. Nothing Can Come Between Us is performed by Nathan Hinton. His television credits include featured roles on Elementary and The Good Wife. On stage, he's appeared in Angels in America, Two Trains Running, and Take Me Out, among many off-Broadway and regional performances. I visit a friend and her new baby. You know, that sacred hush of rooms where a new baby lives. Steam radiators and winter sun, the scent of fresh diapers, and this one expensive French baby lotion. I hold the baby. I remember how to shift my weight from left to right until she falls asleep. The new baby makes me feel better. I think some colleges arrange visits from dogs and local animal shelters during exams. We all need comfort. And my children are too old to provide that now. They're free of me. Godspeed. I sleep better and feel a kind of lightness as I take the stairs to my office. The sunlight through the windows seems more powerful. I barely notice the chatter of my colleagues answering their telephones. At dinner, I watch my own kids, now big, more carefully. It doesn't seem possible that they exist. And sometimes I worry they don't. I remember bedtime stories, outgrown now. Kids like to have the same book read to them over and over, like the faithful with the Torah or the Quran. I once read that children don't understand narrative as fixed. They can watch a movie over and over again and still wonder how it will end. Lucky. In the morning, my eyes snap open, decisive, even early. I am cheerful on the subway and don't have a second cup of coffee. When I settle into my cubicle, I smell what I think is almonds or possibly cinnamon. Then I realize it's that one expensive French baby lotion. Cora, I say to the redhead in the cubicle adjacent, are you wearing perfume? Cora is on the phone, so she does that thing where you point to the phone and mouth the words, I'm on the phone. <laughs> the workday goes. The weekend arrives, the weather is mild, and the children are out all day. They meet friends for oily slices of pizza. I clean out the closet, and as I do, I listen to lovely Rita 37 times in a row. The song is 2 minutes and 42 seconds long, so I spend only about an hour and 40 minutes listening to it. I do this sometimes. Oh, it's a great song. I like the bit with, may I inquire discreetly? The composer Eric Sadi wrote a piece called Vexations, in which a single short theme is played on the piano 840 times in a row. It's meant to take 18 hours to perform. Sometimes a bit of irritation can remind us we're alive. The next week, I'm in the office again, and I can smell it, that lotion. Maybe it's soap. Could it be shampoo? 
It smells like almonds, or maybe it's lavender, or perhaps it's a lemon, or it might be verbena, whatever that is. Cora, I say, are you wearing perfume? Cora is from the South and has an accent. Never do, darling. I sniff at my hands, but they smell like my hands. I open the top drawer of my desk and consider the rubber bands, the old files, the little paper envelopes of salt and pepper from lunches long forgotten. I keep smelling this thing, I tell Percy. We're drinking coffee in the office kitchenette. Is it burning toast? Because that's a warning sign of stroke. <laughs> Percy blows on his hot drink. It's a nice sound, breath skimming liquid and bouncing against the curve of the paper cup. I spend the afternoon worrying that I'm having a stroke. <laughs> but no toast, just this smell of baby. It comes to me in the humid privacy of the shower. It reminds me of my own children, chubby thighs, spit up, damp mouths, pulsing unfinished skulls. I think of quietly singing them any song that came to mind because that always soothed them. I remember singing Happy Birthday, unable to think of another song. It didn't matter. Infants don't care about getting older or just generally don't know what adults are on about. Sometimes it seems to be lingering on me, like Thai food on your pea coat, or movie theater popcorn on a shirt, a smell as yellow as that ersatz butter. I ask my sons if they can smell it, but they look at me like I'm crazy, which is just how they always look at me. <laughs> my youngest son changes the subject as I'm sniffing in the general direction of my armpits. Dad, can I have $10 for lunch? I am distracted at the office to the point that Devin reprimands me. Now, he's nice enough about it, but it's humiliating. I'm at the grocery store examining the cantaloupe when I realize the smell isn't on my person, but inside my nose. I rub the inside of my nostril, but that is uncouth. I try to hold onto the melon's potent scent, latch onto it like a baby with a tit. Melon's by another name. Cantaloupe smells like garbage, but I can't find it. It eludes me. I buy the things on our list, boxes of sugary cereal, a package of sponges, a porous brick of Emmentaler, two cans of cream of mushroom soup. I realize that people on the subway are looking at me. I think it's the smell, but it turns out I've been singing in my head, I thought, but nope. May I inquire discreetly? I no longer need to tuck my head toward my shoulder to try to locate it. The smell is all around me, beside me. It is me. The smell of almonds or flowers, of soft skin or powder, of new life or sugar, of lemon or leaves, of dirt and trees and sky and ocean and everything else you can think of. This begins to feel like religion, something of mine that I'm desperate to share. May I inquire discreetly, can't you smell it? I have to run to the library, which is not far from where my friend with the new baby lives. The baby is less new now, but a baby still. My friend opens the door to her mansion and smiles at me on the stoop. This is a surprise. I need to see the baby, I tell her. 
She places her daughter into my arms and the baby grins up at me. A new trick. <laughs> She's smiling. She likes you. She takes the baby back. Were you just passing by? I want to tell her about the smell, but I can't explain it. I feel foolish. I love that baby smell, I say. It is very powerful. There's a relief, like in listening to a song that you've a snatch of bouncing around your head, vexatious. I do too, my friend says. She touches my shoulder, like a benediction from Mary, mother of God. Fat little baby, man's salvation in her arms. Her eyes are kind. The smell changes, and it's the smell of toast, slowly going black. As I tumble down the concrete steps, I think about how much Paul McCartney loves Rita. May we all be loved. Nathan Hinton read Nothing Can Come Between Us by Ruman Alam. I'm Meg Wallitzer. When we return, a beloved story of intergenerational conflict by Gish Jen. You're listening to Selected Shorts, recorded live in performance at Symphony Space in New York City and at other venues nationwide. Welcome back. This is Selected Shorts. I'm Meg Wallitzer. Speaking of who, what, where, the theme of this episode, you can find this show and many others on our website, selectedshorts.org. There, find the subscribe to podcast button, and you'll see links for Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, and more. And please, if you like the show, share Selected Shorts with your friends and followers, and become an even bigger part of our community. Write a review and let us know what you think. We want to hear from you. On this episode of Selected Shorts, we're asking the questions who, what, where. In our first story, the what. A child's imagination and a writer's transform a media event. In our second, the where. The narrator drifts through his day but can't quite put his feet on the ground. And now, in our final work, Gish Jen's Who's Irish? We have the who, in the form of a strong, not easy to manage Chinese grandmother. She's at odds with her American-born daughter. And she's trying to find her place in her family and the new and confusing culture she's inhabiting. This story from 1997 is a kind of tinderbox in which three generations, all different, are trying to get on with one another. Cultural and generational dissonance is an old, old story, but it will never feel old because it keeps getting played out again and again in different ways in our world. So we need to look at it up close, and that's exactly what Gish Jen does here, with sympathy, depth, and humor. Jen's many nuanced works include her most recent story collection, Thank You, Mr. Nixon, Who's Irish, and the novels The Resisters, The Love Wife, and Typical American. Her work has appeared in the Best American Short Stories four times. Who's Irish is beautifully performed by Frida Foshen, an actress whose busy television career has included recurring roles on Everwood, Close to Home, and 911. She's also known for her voice work, notably in the Disney films Mulan and Mulan 2. In China, people say mixed children. 
are supposed to be smart. And definitely, my granddaughter Sophie is smart. But Sophie is wild. Sophie is not like my daughter Natalie or like me. I am work hard my whole life and fierce besides. My husband always used to say he is afraid of me. And in our restaurant, busboys and cooks all afraid of me too. Even the gang members come for protection money. They try to talk to my husband. <laughs> when I am there, they stay away. If they come by mistake, they pretend they come to eat. They hide behind the menu. They order a lot of food. They talk about their mothers. Oh, my mother have some arthritis. Need to take herbal medicine, they say. Oh, my mother getting old. Her hair all white now. I say, your mother's hair used to be white. But since she diet, it become black again. <laughs> Why don't you go home once in a while and take a look? I tell them, Confucius say, a filial son knows what color his mother's hair is. <laughs> My daughter is fierce too. She is vice president in the bank now. Her new house is big enough for everybody to have their own room, including me. But Sophie, Take after Natalie's husband's family. Their name is Shay. Irish. <laughs> I always thought Irish people are like Chinese people, work so hard on the railroad. But now I know why the Chinese beat the Irish. Of course, not all Irish are like the Shay family. Of course not. My daughter tell me I should not say Irish this, Irish that. How do you like it when people say the Chinese this, the Chinese that, she say. You know, the British call the Irish heathen just like they call the Chinese, she say. You think the opium war was bad. How would you like to live right next door to the British, she say. <laughs> and that is that. My daughter have a funny habit when she win an argument. She take a sip of something and look away so the other person is not embarrassed. So I am not embarrassed. I do not call anybody anything either. I just happened to mention about the Shea family an interesting fact. Four brothers in the family and not one of them work The mother, Bess, have a job before she got sick. She was executive secretary in a big company. She is handle everything for a big shot. You would be surprised how complicated her job is. Not just type this, type that. Now, she is a nice woman with a clean house. But her boys, every one of them is on welfare or so-called 
severance pay or so-called disability pay, something. They say they cannot find work, this is not the economy of the 50s, but I say even the black people doing better these days, some of them live so fancy you'd be surprised. Why the Shea family have so much trouble? They are white people, they speak English. When I come to this country, I have no money and do not speak English. But my husband and I own our restaurant before he died, free and clear, no mortgage. Of course, I understand, I am just lucky. Come from a country where the food is popular all over the world. <laughs> I understand it is not the Shea family's fault. They come from a country where all the food is boiled. <laughs> Still, I say, she's right. We should broaden our horizons, say one brother Jim at Thanksgiving. Forget about the car business. Think about egg rolls. Pod Thai, say another brother Mike. I'm going to make my fortune in pod thai. It's going to be the new pizza. I say, you people too picky about what you sell. Selling egg rolls not good enough for you? But at least my husband and I can say, we made it. What can you say? Tell me, what can you say? Everybody chew their tough turkey. <laughs> I especially cannot understand my daughter's husband, John, who has no job, but cannot take care of Sophie either. Because he is a man, he say, and that's the end of the sentence. <laughs> plain boiled food, plain boiled thinking. Even his name is plain boiled, John. <laughs> Maybe because I grew up with black bean sauce and hwasan sauce, and garlic sauce. I always feel something is missing when my son-in-law talk. But okay. So my son-in-law can be man, I am babysitter. Six hours a day. Same as the old sitter, Crazy Amy, who quit. This is not so easy now that I am 68, Chinese age, almost 70. Still, I try. In China, daughter take care of mother. Here, it is the other way around. Mother help daughter. Mother ask, anything else I can do? Otherwise, daughter complain, mother is not supportive. I tell daughter, we do not have this word in Chinese, <laughs> supportive. But my daughter is too busy to listen. She has to go to meeting. She has to write memo while her husband go to the gym to be a man. <laughs> my daughter say, otherwise he will be depressed. Seems like all his life he has this trouble, depression. No one wants to hire someone who is depressed, she say. 
it is important for him to keep his spirits up. Beautiful wife, beautiful daughter, beautiful house, oven, can clean itself automatically. <laughs> no money left over because only one income, but lucky enough, got the babysitter for free. <laughs> if John lived in China, he would be very happy. But he is not happy. Even at the gym, things go wrong. One day he pull a muscle, another day weight room too crowded. <laughs> Always something. Until finally, hooray, he has a job. Then he feel pressure. I need to concentrate, he say. I need to focus. He is going to work for insurance company, salesman job, a paycheck, he say. And at least he will wear clothes instead of gym shorts. My daughter buy him some special candy bars from the health food store. They say, think on them. <laughs> They are supposed to help John think. <laughs> John is a good-looking boy, you have to say that, especially now that he shaves so you can see his face. <laughs> I am an old man in a young man's game, say John. I will need a new suit, say John. This time I am not going to shoot myself in the foot, say John. Good, I say. She means to be supportive, my daughter say. Don't start the send her back to China thing because we can't. <laughs> Sophie is three years old, American age. But already I see her nice Chinese side swallowed up by her wild Shay side. She looks like mostly Chinese. Beautiful black hair, beautiful black eyes, nose perfect size. Not so flat, looks like something fell down. <laughs> Not so large, looks like some big deal got stuck in wrong face. <laughs> Everything just right, only her skin is a brown surprise to John's family. So brown, they say. Even John say it. She never goes in the sun. Still, she is that color, he say. Brown. They say, nothing the matter with brown. They are just surprised. So brown. Natty is not that brown, they say. They say, it seems like Sophie should be a color in between Natty and John. Seems funny. A girl named Sophie Shea be brown. But she is brown. Maybe her name should be Sophie Brown. <laughs> she never go in the sun. Still, she is that color, they say. Nothing the matter with brown. They are just surprised. The Shea family talk is like this sometimes, going round and around like a Christmas tree train. Maybe 
John is not her father, I say one day. <laughs> to stop the train. And sure enough, train wreck. None of the brothers ever say the word brown to me again. Instead, John's mother, Bess, say, I hope you are not offended. She say, I did my best on those boys, but raising four boys with no father is no picnic. You have a beautiful family, I say. I'm getting old, she say. You deserve a rest, I say. Too many boys make you old. I never had a daughter, she say. You have a daughter. I have a daughter, I say. Chinese people don't think a daughter is so great, but you're right. I have a daughter. I was never against the marriage, you know, she say. I never thought John was marrying down. I always thought Natty was just as good as white. I was never against the marriage either, I say. I just wonder if they look at the whole problem. Of course you pointed out the problem. You are a mother, she say. And now we both have a granddaughter, a little brown granddaughter. She is so precious to me. I laugh. A little brown granddaughter, I say. To tell you the truth, I don't know how she came out so brown. <laughs> we laugh some more. These days, Bess need a walker to walk. She takes so many pills, she need two glasses of water to get them all down. Her favorite TV show is bloopers, and she love her bird feeder. All day long, she can watch that bird feeder like a cat. I can't wait for her to grow up, Bess say. I could use some female company. Too many boys, I say. Boys are fine, she say, but they do surround you after a while. You should take a break. Come live with us, I say. Lots of girls at our house. Be careful what you offer, say Bess with a wink. Where I come from, people mean for you to move in when they say a thing like that. Nothing the matter with Sophie's outside. That's the truth. It is inside that she is like not any Chinese girl I ever see. We go to the park, and this is what she does. She stand up in the stroller, she take off all her clothes, and throw them in the fountain. <laughs> Sophie, I say, stop! But she just laugh like a crazy person. Before I take over as babysitter, Sophie has that crazy person sitter, Amy, the guitar player. My daughter thought, this Amy very creative, another word we do not talk about in China. <laughs> in China, we talk about whether we have difficulty or no difficulty. We talk about whether life is bitter or not bitter. 
In America, all day long, people talk about creative. Never mind that I cannot even look at this Amy with her shirt so short that her belly button showing. This Amy thinks Sophie should love her body. So when Sophie take off her diaper, Amy laugh. When Sophie run around naked, Amy say she wouldn't want to wear a diaper either. When Sophie go shoo-shoo in her lap, Amy laugh and say, there are no germs in pee. When Sophie take off her shoes, Amy say, bare feet is best, even the pediatrician say so. That is why Sophie now walk around with no shoes like a beggar child. Also, why Sophie loved to take off her clothes. Turn around, say the boys in the park. Let's see that ass. Of course, Sophie does not understand. Sophie clap her hands. I am the only one to say, no, this is not a game. It has nothing to do with John's family, say my daughter. Amy was too permissive, that's all. But I think if Sophie was not wild inside, she would not take off her shoes and clothes to begin with. You never take off your clothes when you were little, I say. All my Chinese friends had babies. I never saw one of them act wild like that. Look, my daughter say, I have a big presentation tomorrow. John and my daughter agree Sophie is a problem, but they don't know what to do. You spank her, she'll stop, I say another day. But they say, oh no, in America, parents not supposed to spank the child. It gives them low self-esteem, my daughter say. And that leads to problems later, as I happen to know. My daughter never have big presentation the next day when the subject of spanking come up. <laughs> I don't want you to touch Sophie, she say. No spanking, period. Don't tell me what to do, I say. I'm not telling you what to do, say my daughter. I'm telling you how I feel. I am not your servant, I say. Don't you dare talk to me like that. My daughter have another funny habit when she lose an argument. <laughs> she spread out all her fingers and look at them as if she liked to make sure they are still there. <laughs> My daughter is fierce like me, but she and John think it is better to explain to Sophie that clothes are a good idea. This is not so hard in the cold weather. In the warm weather, it is very hard. Use your words, my daughter say. That's what we tell Sophie. How about if you set a good example? As if good example mean anything to Sophie. I am so fierce, the gang members who used to come to the restaurant all afraid of me. But Sophie, not afraid. I say, Sophie? If you take off your clothes, no snack. I say, Sophie, if you take off your clothes, no lunch. I say, Sophie, if you take off your clothes, no park. Pretty soon, we are stay home all day. 
And by the end of six hours, she still did not have one thing to eat. You never saw a child stubborn like that. I'm hungry, she cried when my daughter come home. What's the matter? Doesn't your grandmother feed you? My daughter laughed. No, Sophie say. She doesn't feed me anything. My daughter laugh again. Here you go, she say. She say to John, Sophie must be growing. Growing like a weed, I say. Still, Sophie take off her clothes. Until one day, I spank her. Not too hard, but she cry and cry. And when I tell her if she doesn't put her clothes back on, I'll spank her again. She put her clothes back on. Then I tell her she is good girl and give her some food to eat. The next time we go to the park and not a nice Chinese girl, she does not take off her clothes. <laughs> she stopped taking off her clothes, I report. Finally. How did you do it, my daughter asked. <laughs> After 28 years experience with you, I guess I learned something, I say. It must have been a phase, John say, and his voice is suddenly like an expert. His voice is like an expert about everything these days, now that he carry a leather briefcase and wears shiny shoes and can go shopping for a new car. On the company, he say. The company will pay for it, but he will be able to drive it whenever he wants. A free car, he say. How do you like that? It's good to see you in the saddle again, my daughter say. Some of your family patterns are scary. At least I don't drink, he say. He say, and I'm not the only one with scary family patterns. <laughs> That's for sure, say my daughter. Everyone is happy, even I am happy, because there is more trouble with Sophie, but now I think I can help her Chinese side fight against her wild side. <laughs> I teach her to eat food with fork or spoon or chopsticks. She cannot just grab into the middle of a bowl of noodles. I teach her not to play with garbage cans. Sometimes I spank her, but not too often and not too hard. Still, there are problems. Sophie likes to climb everything. If there's a railing, she is never next to it. Always, she is on top of it. Also, Sophie liked to hit the mommies of her friends. <laughs> she learned this from her playground best friend, Sinbad, who is four. Sinbad wear army clothes every day and like to ambush his mommy. <laughs> he is the one who dug a big hole under the play structure, a foxhole, he call it, all by himself, very hard working. Now he wait in the foxhole with a shovel full of wet sand. When his mommy come, he throw it right at her. Oh, it's all right, his mommy says. You can't get rid of war games. It's part of their imaginative play. All the boys go through it. Also, he liked to kick his mommy. And one day, he tells Sophie to kick his mommy too. I wish this story is not true. Kick her, kick her, Sinbad say. 
Sophie kick her. A little kick, as if she just so happened was swinging her little leg and didn't realize that big mommy leg was in the way. Still, I spank Sophie and make Sophie say she is sorry. And what does the mommy say? Really, it's all right, she say. It didn't hurt. After that, Sophie learned she can attack mommies in the playground. And some will say, stop. But others will say, oh, she didn't mean it, especially if they realize Sophie will be punished. This is how one day bigger trouble come. The bigger trouble start when Sophie hide in the foxhole with that shovel full of sand. She wait, and when I come look for her, she throw it at me all over my nice clean clothes. Did you ever see a Chinese girl act this way? Sophie, I say, come out of there. Say you're sorry. But she does not come out. Instead, she laugh. Nyah, 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 she says. I am not exaggerate. Millions of children in China, not one act like this. <laughs> Sophie, I say, now, come out now. But she knows she is in big trouble. She knows if she come out, what will happen next? So she does not come out. I am 68, Chinese age almost 70. How can I crawl under there to catch her? Impossible. So I yell, 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 and what happens? Nothing. A Chinese mother would help, but American mothers, they look at you, they shake their head, they go home. And of course, a Chinese child would give up, but not Sophie. I hate you, she yelled. I hate you, Meanie. Meanie is my new name these days. Long time this goes on. Long, long time. The foxhole is deep. You cannot see too much. You don't know where is the bottom. You cannot hear too much either. If she does not yell, you cannot even know she is still there or not. After a while, getting cold out, getting dark out. No one left in the playground, only us. Sophie, I say. How did you become stubborn like this? I am go home without you now. I try to use a stick, chase her out of there, and once or twice I hit her, but still she does not come out. So finally, I leave. I go outside the gate. Bye-bye, I say. I am go home now. But still, she does not come out and does not come out. Now it is dinner time. The sky is black. I think I should maybe go get help. But how can I leave a little girl by herself in the playground? A bad man could come. A rat could come. I go back in to see what has happened to Sophie. What if she have a shovel and is making a tunnel to escape? Sophie, I say. No answer. Sophie? I don't know if she's alive. I don't know if she's fall asleep down there. If she is crying, I cannot hear her. So I take the stick and poke. Sophie, I say, I promise I no hit you. If you come out, I give you a lollipop. No answer. By now I worried. 
What to do? What to do? What to do? I poke some more, even harder, so that I am poking and poking when my daughter and John suddenly appear. What are you doing? What is going on? Say my daughter. Put down that stick, say my daughter. You are crazy, say my daughter. John wiggle under the structure into the foxhole to rescue Sophie. She fell asleep, say John the expert. She's okay, that's one big hole. Now Sophie is crying and crying. Sophie, my daughter say, hugging her. Are you okay, Peanut? Are you okay? She's just scared, say John. Are you okay? I say too. I don't know what happened, I say. She's okay, say John. He is not like my daughter, full of questions. He is full of answers, until we get home and can see by the lamplight. Will you look at her, he yelled then. What the hell happened? Bruises all over her brown skin and a swollen up eye. You are crazy, say my daughter. Look at what you did, you are crazy. I try very hard, I say. How could you use a stick? I told you to use your words. She is hard to handle, I say. She's three years old. You cannot use a stick, say my daughter. She is not like any Chinese girl I ever saw, I say. I brush some sand off my clothes. Sophie's clothes are dirty too, but at least she has her clothes on. Has she done this before? Ask my daughter. Has she hit you before? She hits me all the time, Sophie say, eating ice cream. Your family, say John. Believe me, say my daughter. A daughter I have, a beautiful daughter. I took care of her when she could not hold her head up. I took care of her before she could argue with me, when she was a little girl with two pigtails, one of them always crooked. I took care of her when we have to escape from China. I took care of her when suddenly we live in a country with cars everywhere. If you are not careful, your little girl get run over. When my husband die, I promise him I will keep the family together, even though it was just two of us, hardly a family at all. But now, my daughter take me around to look at apartments. After all, I can cook, I can clean. There's no reason I cannot live by myself. All I need is a telephone. Of course, she is sorry. Sometimes she cry. I am the one to say everything will be okay. She says she has no choice. She doesn't want to end up divorced. I say, divorce is terrible. I don't know who invented this terrible idea. Instead of live with a telephone, though, surprise. I come to live with Bess. Imagine that. Bess make an offer. And sure enough, where she come from, 
People mean for you to move in when they say things like that. A crazy idea. Go to live with someone else's family. But she liked to have some female company. Not like my daughter who does not believe in company. These days when my daughter visit, she does not bring Sophie. Best say, we should give Natty time. We will see Sophie again soon. But seems like my daughter have more presentation than ever before. Every time she come, she have to leave. I have a family to support, she say. And her voice is heavy, as if soaking wet. I have a young daughter and a depressed husband and no one to turn to. When she say no one to turn to, she mean me. These days, my beautiful daughter is so tired, she can just sit there in a chair and fall asleep. John lost his job again already, but still they rather hire a babysitter than ask me to help, even they can't afford it. Of course, the new babysitter is much younger, can run around. I don't know if Sophie these days is wild or not wild. She call me Nini, but she liked to kiss me too, sometimes. I remember that every time I see a child on TV, Sophie liked to grab my hair, a fistful in each hand, and then kiss me, smack on the nose. I never see any other child kiss that way. The satellite TV has so many channels, more channels than I can count, including a Chinese channel from mainland and a Chinese channel from Taiwan, but most of the time, I watch bloopers with Bess. <laughs> also, I watch the bird feeder. So many, many kinds of birds come. The Shea sons hang around all the time, asking, when will I go home? But Bess tell them, get lost. She's a permanent resident, say Bess. She isn't going anywhere. Then she wink at me and switch the channel with the remote control. Of course, I shouldn't say Irish this, Irish that, especially now I am become honorary Irish myself, according to Bess. <laughs> Me? Who's Irish? I say, and she laugh. All the same, if I could mention one thing about some of the Irish, not all of them, of course, I like to mention this. Their talk just stick. I don't know how Bess Shea learned to use her words, but sometimes I hear what she say a long time later. Permanent resident, not going anywhere. Over and over I hear it, the voice of Bess. Frida Foshen read Gish Jen's Who's Irish? I'm Meg Wallitzer. When you think about it, a lot is packed into this short story. It almost feels like the scaffolding for a novel. We've got three generations, ideas about immigrant parents and assimilation, stubbornly baked-in notions about the other, a culture clash, and diverging attitudes toward child-rearing and individuality. The grandmother narrator, speaking in her imperfect English, gives the piece such a different feel than if it had been in third person. 
The intimacy and specificity of the first-person voice, the I voice, allows the story to be really funny for one thing, and glancingly sad too. The strong-willed grandmother finds her match in her granddaughter. But once you're confronted with your own behavior, you may not be able to keep up the old ways forever. Grandmothers have to relent. Little kids have to climb out of foxholes in the playground. Something always has to give. Or at the very least, something new has to be understood. And in this story, it is. Sometimes the simplest questions, who, what, where, have the hardest answers, and the three stories on this show make us think about each of them in a new way. We might not even end up thinking about the same who at the end of a story as we did at the beginning, or the same what. And as for the where, well, the best fiction always takes us somewhere entirely new. I'm Meg Wallitzer. Thanks for joining me for Selected Shorts. Selected Shorts is produced by Jennifer Brennan. Our literary team is Matthew Love, Drew Richardson, and Vivienne Woodward. Our director of marketing is Mary Shimkin. Our radio producers are Sarah Montague and Jenny Falcon. The readings are recorded by Miles B. Smith. Our mix engineer for this episode was Jennifer Nolson. Our theme music is David Peterson's That's the Deal, performed by the Deerdorf Peterson Group. Selected Shorts is supported by the Dungannon Foundation, creator of the Ray Award for the short story. Support is also provided by the NYC COVID-19 Response and Impact Fund in the New York Community Trust, the Howard Gilman Foundation, the Schubert Foundation, the Sharina Endowment Fund, the Blanchette Hooker Rockefeller Fund, the Achilles and Bodman Foundation, the Henry Nias Foundation, the Fan Fox and Leslie R. Samuels Foundation, the Michael Tuck Foundation, the Vida Foundation, the Axe Houghton Foundation, the Lemberg Foundation, and the Grodzins Fund. Selected Shorts is made possible by the National Endowment for the Arts and with public funds from the New York State Council on the Arts with the support of Governor Kathy Hochul and the New York State Legislature. Additional support is provided by the Isaiah Sheffer Fund for new initiatives. Symphony Space thanks our generous supporters, including our board of directors, producer circle, and members who make our programs possible with their annual support. Selected Shorts is produced and distributed by Symphony Space.